Now open with me to Zechariah chapter 8. And let's, let's pray this morning. God, we thank you this morning that we are able to be here, that we are here to gather for worship. And that as we are here for worship, we are opening our Bibles, and now we desire to hear from you. So we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as many of you know, Samantha and I have desired to live here in Fairdale for a while, and uh, we've been at the church now for six years, and we've really come to know a lot of you and love you, and, and vice versa. We, we feel that love from you all, and so earlier this year, we had decided that we're going to take that step, we're going to put our house for sale, and we're going to look for a house in Fairdale, and well, our house sold like that, and uh, before you know it, it came time that we had to be out before we had a house to move into, and so the last couple of months have just been a whirlwind, uh, but yesterday we were finally able to start moving into our new house, and so we are so thrilled to be here in Fairdale, uh, and so yesterday was a crazy day. Uh, we get to the house, and, and we have a lot of people coming to help, and so we got people cleaning, we got people painting, we got people moving stuff, and so it was just a wild day all around, and we knew that we had a couple different people come into the house. We had a couple appointments scheduled, and I knew that it was getting around the evening between five and six o'clock, and I was supposed to have the internet guy coming to hook us up with some internet because everybody wants internet. And so it's after six o'clock. The guy hasn't shown up yet, and I, I happen to see somebody come up, and it looks like they're trying to ring the doorbell, which we know doesn't work. So I open the door, and it's not the internet guy. It's a pizza delivery guy. And uh, he's like, here you go, got two pies and some breadsticks for you. I'm like, um, I didn't order any pizza. I think you got the wrong house. He said, oh, no, no, the house across the street, they bought it for you and they, they want to welcome you to the neighborhood. I thought, wow, that's incredible. And it was such an unexpected surprise and it kind of almost made me tear up. Like, wow, I haven't even met those people yet. I haven't even made eye contact with them yet but yet they are going out of their way to welcome us into the community. You know, and unexpected things like that tend to stick with us, don't they? Things that come out of nowhere that you're not expecting, when they happen to you in that way, you never forget them. And I'm sure if we had time for all of us to share something unexpected that we had experienced, we would all have something to say. And I'm sure years down the road, I will never forget that that day one, moving into our new neighborhood, somebody bought us pizza. Well, in the same way, as we come to Zechariah chapter eight, what we hear, what God says in, in Zechariah chapter eight is very much unexpected on the heels of chapter seven. So I want us to, to read all of chapter eight together, and then I wanna point out what, what I'm talking about. So follow along with me as we read Zechariah chapter eight. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, 
each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the, of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing the words of the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day when the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe or from him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nation of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember some of the things that Josh talked about from chapter seven. And if you weren't, let me just read them back to you. God was calling for mercy and justice among his people, and the response that he got, beginning in verse 11 from chapter seven, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard. This is the people of God. This is their response to God telling them how they should live. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want to obey. They wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to go their own way. And so for us to read chapter 8 on the heels of chapter 7 is so unexpected. It's completely out of left field. 
But as we get into the details of chapter eight, there are three things that I want us to look at this morning. The first is God's sovereignty. The second is God's mercy. And the third is that God requires obedience. God's sovereignty, God's mercy, and God requires obedience. First, I want us to look at the sovereignty of God. You may have noticed that in this chapter alone, chapter eight, the the phrase Lord of hosts, or the, the title Lord of hosts is used a lot. I read it so many times. It appears 18 times in chapter eight. It appears 53 times in the book of Zechariah. Now, the the term Lord of hosts could also be translated as Yahweh of armies, as the heavenly armies, the Lord of the heavenly armies, or also Yahweh the Almighty. And no matter how you translate the phrase or the title, what it means is it speaks to God's authority and strength as king and his universal rule. So throughout the whole chapter, we are reminded that he is Lord of hosts. He is in control. He is orchestrating everything that's happening. He is sovereign. Now, sovereignty is a big word. It's a theological word, but it's also a biblical word. We find it in the Bible. And so here are a couple of verses that use the term. Let's just see what it says about God himself. Acts chapter four, verse 24 says, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The term sovereign is applying directly to God. First Timothy chapter six, verse 15, it says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the only one who's sovereign is what that verse says. Revelation chapter six, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? So sovereignty is a theological term. It's also a biblical term. It is found in the text of the Bible. And so we need to understand what it means. There's a verse in the book of Job that is incredibly helpful. It's at the end of Job. It's Job chapter 42. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, all of these terrible, awful things happen to Job. His children die. He has all kinds of sicknesses. His crop is is destroyed. All kinds of awful, terrible things happen to Job. And so the majority of the book is him and his friends trying to figure out what in the world would allow God to allow these things to happen. Why would that happen? And so they're always going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then... In chapter 38 of the book of Job, God answers Job. And for four chapters, chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, God simply comes at Job with all of these questions that Job cannot answer. Job has no idea. And God reminds him of how big and awesome he is. And Job's response in Job chapter 42, verse two, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. After God answers to Job and basically tells him, I don't have to answer to you, Job's response is, now I know that you are in control of all things and not any one of your purposes can be thwarted. That is the sovereignty of God. He is in control. 
He is the one who calls the shots and not one of his purposes can be changed, thwarted, or thrown off track. Psalm 115 verse three says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 verse six says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. God is the one who has supreme control over all things. Now, why does that matter? Well, I want us to see it in the context of Zechariah 8. I want you to see all the different places where this pops out, all right? Listen to all the things that God says. Starting in verse three, God says, I will return and dwell in Jerusalem. Notice there's no, there's no contest. It's not that he's saying he wants to, but there's gonna be hardship. He says, I will. I will return and I will dwell in Jerusalem. Look at verse seven. He says, I will save my people. In verse eight, he says, I will bring them to dwell with me. They will be my people. I will be their God. Verse 10, I, I set every nation against its neighbor. Verse 11, now I will not deal with them as, deal with the remnant as in former days. Verse 12, I will cause the remnant to possess these things. Verse 13, I will save you and you will be a blessing. Verse 14, I purpose to bring disaster and I did not relent. Verse 15, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem. Multiple times in this chapter, God is telling his people through the prophet what he has done or what he will do, and there is no changing it. What God decides to do, he will accomplish. No one will thwart his purposes. No one will change his mind. So why does that matter for you and for me in 2019? Well, I think us as church people, we're really good at putting on a good face. We are really good at when we get around each other, acting like our life is cleaned up, acting like nothing is going wrong, acting like we've got everything together. But the reality is, and I've been around church long enough to know that perhaps maybe even the majority of us in this room this morning have turmoil in our lives. It could be financial problems. You're looking at the bills that are due and you're looking at the income that's coming in and they just don't, don't add up. You don't know how you're gonna make it. It could be marital problems. Maybe from our perspective, it looks like your marriage is great, but every day at home is a constant fight. It could be relational problems with family or friends. Perhaps it's children that have gone wayward Maybe it's health problems. Get that report from the doctor, you don't know what to do. See, all of us oftentimes are feeling all of this turmoil and hardship. And Josh has probably said it from this pulpit over a thousand times, life is hard. And we know that. We're not trying to downplay that. We're not trying to say that's a lie. We understand that. But when we read in the Bible, that God is sovereign, that whatever he determines to do will come to pass, when we understand that that extends to our life as well, that God is sovereign over me and my life and all of my circumstances, that can bring peace in the midst of chaos. Because oftentimes when we are in that turmoil, when we are feeling the weight of the hardship that whatever it is that you're feeling, 
We have a hard time seeing beyond that. We need to know, and the Bible is teaching us, and God wants us to know that he is in control. You probably all know this verse, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. That's true. That means God is in control. That means he is sovereign. That means if you get that bad health bill, God has allowed that to happen. He's still in control. He hasn't lost control. He hasn't forgotten about you. You haven't dropped by the wayside. He's still on his throne and he's still in control. When you don't think you can make it another day, God is in control. He is sovereign. But there's another reason why this is comforting. And it's specific to this passage here because chapter eight is so unexpected from chapter seven. Chapter seven describes the people of God as they made their hearts diamond hard. They covered their ears so they wouldn't hear. They're trying to play the ignorant card. But still in chapter eight, God says, I will save you and I will be your God and you will be my people. See, that sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Because we know from reading, these Israelites do not deserve to be saved. But the reality is that we don't either. We may think of ourselves a little more highly, but we're just like them. And when God makes a promise and says, I will save you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, no matter how unexpected that promise is, we know that it's gonna come true because God said it, and he's sovereign. Y'all, I know the specific sins that I struggle with, and you know the specific sins that you struggle with that nobody else might know about. And when I think about my own self, I think, why would God ever save me? too good to be true. But God says it. And if God says it, then he will do it because he's sovereign, because he's in control, because no one can stop him. The fact that God is sovereign should bring you and I a great deal of comfort this morning. Not only in our personal hardship, but also in knowing that if God says he's gonna save a wretched sinner like me, he will absolutely do it and nothing can stop him. That's comfort. God is sovereign this morning. The second thing I want you to see is that God is merciful. Again, we see that chapter eight is coming right after chapter seven where the people are refusing to pay attention. They're stubborn and and they're stopping their ears so they might not hear and they're making their hearts diamond hard. And so we know without, a, without any doubt that God's promise to save the people is not because of their works. It's not because they've tried hard to clean themselves up. They've really tried to get their act together. It's pretty obvious that they don't want anything to do with cleaning themselves up. They're actually trying to go the exact opposite way. But yet God still says, I'm gonna dwell in Jerusalem, on Zion, 
and you're gonna be my people. And you're gonna dwell with me. Look at some of the things that he says. Look at verse four and, and five. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city, of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Now we just read that. That sounds really strange and random. Why is everybody hanging out in the streets? But when you understand historical things in the Bible, it makes more sense. Listen to these verses. This is Lamentations chapter two, verses 11 and 12. It says, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. See, when you understand that in ancient days, the streets are a dangerous place to be when a city's under attack. I mean, that would even be true in current days, right? If you're just out in the streets, there's no protection from anything. If, if enemy soldiers are coming, the last place you wanna be is caught out in the streets. So why does it matter that God says, the elderly will sit in the streets with staff in their hand and the children will play in the streets. That means that when they dwell with God, they will be in a city where there is no threat of destruction. There is no threat from any enemies. There is no threat of being overthrown. The city of God will be a safe place for his people to dwell because God is jealous for Zion. God will protect Zion. God will protect his, his city and his people and there will never be a threat to any of them. Y'all, this is awesome. It's a great promise. We all desire to live in a place where there's no threat of, of robbery or there's no threat of invasion. That's why we have multi-billion dollar corporations that are all about home security because we desire security. God is promising to dwell in my city with me, the children will play in the streets because there will be no threat. They will have nothing to fear because I will protect them. I will be their God. They will be my people. We move down to chapter, uh, or verse 11 through 13. God says, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of the people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you. and You shall be a blessing. Fear not but let your hands be strong. There's a lot of covenant language in this chapter. We read as our, as our uh, Old Testament reading today, Jeremiah chapter 31. This is a, a popular passage about the new covenant that God promises to his people. And in it, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is the promise that God says he will dwell with his people. He will rescue them. He will save them. And here again, in Zechariah, he's reminding his people of the promise that he made so long ago. We find that language all the way back in Exodus, 
We find it in, in Leviticus. We find it all over the Bible where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's clear from this chapter that it's not because of anything they've done. It's simply because God is merciful. This is who he is. Our God is a merciful God. He does not treat us the way we deserve to be treated. See, that's typically how we relate with other people. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. If you're mean to me, I'll be mean to you. Thankfully, that's not how God treats us. Because God is merciful. Even while his people are stopping their ears. They're turning a stubborn shoulder. They're making their hearts diamond hard so that they won't hear what the word has to say. God still says in the very next chapter of scripture, I will save you. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's merciful. That is the mercy of God. Y'all, we cannot read the scripture and walk away thinking that we can earn ourselves a way to God. We can't. The Bible is too clear that all human intentions are to run away from God, not to him. If God does not reach out and draw us to himself, we will never arrive, uh, get to him. The Bible is so clear and so plain on that. See, we serve a merciful God and a sovereign God. If he says he will do it, he will do it. But also, this promise here is, is framed by two, two phrases, right? Look at verse nine. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. And then back in verse 13, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. You see, there is still work that needs to be done by the Israelite people. This promise is future tense. It's not happening yet, but it's about to happen. It's coming. And what we know, we have the benefit of the New Testament, we know that this is coming and will find its fulfillment in Jesus. Some of these later chapters of Zechariah are quoted so many times in the New Testament, pointing to Jesus. We have the benefit of knowing that. They did not. But yet they're hearing this promise. And God is reminding them, just because you're hearing this promise does not mean there's not work to do. Remember, the temple is being rebuilt at this time. And God is reminding them, let your hand be strong. You need to continue the work that you're doing to rebuild the temple. There is still work to do. But also, if we look forward to verse 18, through 18 and 19, we finally see an answer to a question that was asked at the beginning of chapter seven. Look back at chapter seven, verse two with me real quick. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sh uh, Shar Sharazer, and Rejamelik and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done so many years? Josh talked at length about this last week. They're coming and they're wanting to ask, 
hey, because the temple's almost done being rebuilt, because all of these things are happening, do we still need to fast in the the fifth month? Right, and God gets at the motive. Why were you fasting to begin with? Were you fasting for me or were you fasting for you? But now, here in chapter eight, we finally get the answer to that question. Look at verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the 10th. So he doesn't even just say the fifth that they asked about. He says, he names four different months in which they were fasting. He says, they shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. See, God is gonna change those months of fasting into feasting, but not yet. See, that's the promise that God is making to his people. All of those months that you spent fasting and waiting and hoping in me, he says, I will turn all that fasting into feasting. There will come a time where you won't fast in the fifth month anymore. Rather, you will feast it will be a complete change from what was to what's going to come because you're gonna dwell with me, because I'm gonna save you, because you're gonna be my people and I'm gonna be your God. God is merciful towards his people in changing their their fasting into feasting. But lastly, I want you to see that God requires obedience. We've seen through this chapter that God is sovereign He's in control of all things. God is merciful. He is willing to save his people even when they have done nothing to deserve it. But God requires obedience. Did you know that God cares about the way that you conduct yourself? God cares about what we do with our life. God cares about the way we interact with other people. God cares about the way we talk to him, interact with him. I hope you know that. Look at verse 16 and following. These are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. God does not change. He was not different during the time of Zechariah than he is now. God is the same, always has been and always will be. God has standards for you and I on how we are to live. And the same is true in Zechariah's day. God says you are to speak the truth to one another. We are to be honest people. We are not to lie to one another. We are not to go behind each other's backs. We are not to be tricky or deceiving with one another, but we are to be honest, people of our word. We mean what we say. We carry out the promises that we make. This is the way God desires his people to live. Are you living that way? He says, render in your gates judgments that are true and that make for peace. Are you truthful with other people? 
the way that you deal with them, judgments that you have to make between people? Are you honest? Do you seek to make peace with other people? Are you that type of person that every relationship you have is rocky? Every relationship you have is not what we would call peaceful. Again, this is how God desires that his people would treat each other, but also outsiders. He says, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't be angry with your brother. It's just like committing murder. How do we treat one another? Do we, are we filled with anger towards our brothers that, that do us wrong? People that have hurt us in the past. Do we hold grudges? Do we maintain that anger throughout our whole life? Or are we willing to forgive? God wants his people to be those who are willing to forgive and who are not people who, who hold up anger against one another in their hearts. But he also says, and who love no false oath. Again, God wants us to be people of our word, people with integrity. Do these things explain you? Could you look at your own life and say, these are characteristics of my life? God said that in chapter seven. And the response of the people was, nope, not interested. Turning a hard heart, I'm making my heart diamond hard. Not interested, God. Oftentimes we do the same, don't we? Oftentimes we know what's the right thing to do, but it's so easier to do something else. It's so much easier to go the other way and to just kind of act like, well, I kind of thought that might be the right thing, but I don't really know. Play that ignorant card like what they were trying to do in chapter seven. Y'all, God has standards. You see, God makes the promise that he will save his people, that they will dwell with him and he will be their God and they will be his people. But God also requires obedience from his people. See, we can't think that God is gonna save us just so that we can continue living however we want because God has standards. And you're about to see why. The very end of this, this chapter is a a reason for why God has standards and why he wants his people to live a certain way. Look with me in chapter, uh, verse 20 and following. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nation of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. See, obedient living produces a desire in those who observe us that they wanna come and see. I'm sure all of us have met somebody who's unique and different. And usually when we do, our interest is piqued. We wanna learn more. We wanna find out more. 
Let me find out more about why you are the way you are. What makes you tick? Let me learn from you. Let me, let me understand you better. And God is saying the same thing with his people. When his people that he saves live in obedience to what he has called us to do, he says the nations will see. And what they're gonna wanna do is to come and to see for themselves. He says, 10 men from every nation and every language will grab the robe of a Jew and say, bring me with you because I have heard that God is with you. Now let me ask you, is anybody following you saying, man, bring me with you because I've heard that God is with you? Let me come and see for myself what is so different about you. You see, again, God never changes. God did not just all of a sudden get all about missions and, and care about the whole world in the New Testament. God has always cared about the nations. God has always desired that every, every nation, every language, every tongue, and every people bow their knee to him. We see it in Zechariah chapter eight. You see, the purpose of us living obedient lives to God is not so that we can brag about how obedient and good we are. It's so that people outside will notice us and say, hey, let me go with you because I need to find out what it is that's different about you. I need to find out about your God. I have heard that God is with you. I see that you are different and that God is with you. Let me come and see for myself. First Baptist Church of Fairdale will make a huge difference in the community of Fairdale when we live obedient to God. Because those who are not here, those who are not in church this morning, they will see that you and I are different. They will see shadows of who God is in the way that we conduct ourselves. And they're gonna say, I need to find out more. I need to figure out why they're so different. Why do they keep loving me when I'm so mean to them? Why do they keep showing me grace when I show them none? God desires that we live obedient lives, not for our sake, but for his. See, the Christian life is not just about us patting ourselves on the back for how good we have, we've been. God desires that when he saves his people, they live obediently to him so that more will come and be saved. And even though the promise sounds too good to be true, that God is willing to save sinners no matter what sins they've committed, no matter how bad they've been, no matter how many things that they've done, we need to remind ourselves that if he says he's gonna do it, he's gonna do it because he's sovereign, because none of his plans can or will be thwarted. God promises to save, he will save. And if God promises to use you and me in our obedient lives as a way to bring more people to him, now let's do it. Let's say, yes, Lord, use me. Help me to repent of sin and to follow after you and to live obediently because I want people to notice me and to say, hey, I wanna come and see for myself. May God use us 
and the most simple things such as obedient living to continue building his kingdom in Fairdale. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the word from Zechariah. This promise that came out of nowhere. That after your people have said that they did not want to obey, they did not want to listen to the word of God, you still said, I will save you. and I will be your God and you will be my people. God, the promise stands for us this morning. No matter how how much of too good to be true it sounds, you have said it. And we know that you're sovereign. We know that you will accomplish all that you say you will do. God, I pray that you would draw us to yourself this morning through your son, Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.